In this episode, we speak with Sonia Brown, general partner and co-head of Growth Equity at Norwest. Norwest is a leading venture and growth equity investment firm, managing more than $12.5 billion in capital. Since its inception, the firm has invested in more than 650 companies and currently partners with over 200 active companies in its venture and growth equity portfolio. Sonia is focused on growth equity and buyouts, investing across a wide range of sectors, including consumer, retail, internet, education, and business services. Her current investments include Babylist, Forum Brands, Jolin, Junk King, Kendra Scott, Madison Reed, Sen Reeve, and SmartSide. Before Norwest, Sonia was at Summit Partners for almost a decade. Sonia was recognized by GrowthCap as one of the top women leaders in growth investing of 2022. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click the subscribe and drop us a comment. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Sonia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Happy to be here. Um, So where I thought we could kick off is the difference between growth equity and venture. The reason why I want to start off there is because Norwest does both. And many CEOs who listen into our podcast may not be sure in which category they fall in. And I'm sure on the edges, they can overlap. But could you tell us a little bit about how you view growth equity and maybe how you approach it versus venture? Absolutely. It's a great question because I actually think some firms define it differently. And so it's really good to understand the culture of the investment firm and how they think about the different sort of stages of capital. At Norwest, we come from a background of growth equity that's very traditional profitable growing company type investing, where I spent almost a decade at Summit Partners, my co-head spent a decade at TA Associates, that historical sort of type of growth equity where we're honestly, in most cases, looking to be the first capital into a company because companies here in this category have been bootstrapped, maybe with angel financing or personal financing, friends and family, but really kind of bootstrap versus institutional money. Now, as we've gotten bigger, we've sort of expanded our scope. And so in some cases, we are recapping old cap tables that maybe have had some investors in that are long in the tooth, as we might think about it, and are looking for the start over of their cap table. And so we do that now as well. But any company that's still burning cash on the bottom line is, in our world, considered venture. And so it doesn't matter if it's a seed company or series A, B, C, or what we would call late stage venture. And I think that's the overlap is sometimes late stage venture in some places is called growth. For us, if it's still burning cash, even if you're a hundred million in revenue, we're going to move you over to our venture side. And if you're EBITDA positive, we're going to move you over to our growth equity side. Now we're in interesting times to say the least, and everyone has their view on where we are in terms of capital deployment in the private markets and what it looks like in the upcoming months. Do you have a view as to whether you'll be more or less uh, aggressive on growth equity versus venture? 
So it's a good question. I think each team is looking at the world individually, right? So we are all one fund and we meet every Monday together, both sides, growth and venture. I do think we're being thoughtful about where there are venture opportunities and perhaps those are going earlier to seed investments and Series A investments currently. And then on the growth equity side, we do still see, even in this market, some remarkable companies that are growing maybe 40% and maybe have 40% EBITDA margins. And to us, that's a really premium company that we'd want to partake in and be an investor in, regardless of what's going on around them with the market. We also, I would say on the growth equity side, the companies we're investing in often don't need the cash on the balance sheet. They might be choosing to add cash on the balance sheet, maybe to go take advantage of acquisitions in this time frame, where they think they can maybe expand their business via M&A in today's market. They might be really more thinking about, gosh, I'm about to get married and would like to buy a house. And maybe as a founder, I'm cash flow positive. And so could I take some cash off the table? We find there are a lot of life events that, again, happen without any regard to what the economy is doing. And so sometimes that's a retirement or a divorce or a baby or marriage. And events like that sometimes create the interest to, to have conversations about liquidity. So back to your first question, we do do a lot of secondary, right? Where we're providing liquidity to founders or early friends and family and angel investors. Now, I can imagine that not every situation is clear cut and some deliberation is necessary. Ultimately, what do you look for? Are there certain key aspects to an investment that they must have in order for you to give the go-ahead signal and invest? For us on our growth equity team, they must be cash flow positive. In some cases, they may be EBITDA break-even or EBITDA negative on a gap basis from an accounting perspective, but we're very focused on cash flow profitability. And we're very focused on growth. So top line growth for us at, at least 20%. Some of our companies are growing 80%, but the top line's got to be growing at least double digits. And in some cases, we might do more of a growth buyout where the growth is lower, but we use some debt financing and, and think about the capital structure that way. You have a keen eye for good investments as proven by your performance. Tell us a little bit how you thought about like a Kendra Scott or PCA Skin. What was it about those companies that made you think like this would be a good one to back? In the case of Kendra Scott, first and foremost, it was a Texas brand at the time. She had 12 stores. 11 of them were in Texas. One was outside of Texas and frankly wasn't doing well at the time, but 11 in Texas that were doing really, really well. And it was kind of a brand that was expanding both online and in wholesale and in retail before anyone else was doing Omnichannel. <laughs> to me, Kendra was sort of one of the OGs in Omnichannel because she was looking to build a business and looking to build a profitable business. And she very early understood that it was going to be wholesale that could be very clean as far as sending and selling product and getting good margin without having to invest on the marketing side as much on the wholesale side. It did take capital to open physical stores, but she had more control and could do an experience and her stores really are an experience. And then the online for replenishment and gifting and that whole circle just really worked that flywheel and 
that was what drew us to the opportunity. And we felt like even if she only killed it in Texas, it would be an awesome investment. And if she made it outside of Texas, it'd be a home run and it's been a home run. So Mm -hmm. in the case of PCA Skin, we felt like that was a brand that was really under the radar, had some distribution more through the professional channel, but through esthetician. So it was more of a B to B to C type of a play. We felt like it was a little bit of a secret to the C, the consumer. So the estheticians and professional channel knew about it. So there was a lot of push of the products through that channel. But I felt like, gosh, well, if we did some direct marketing and actually built our own website and we had some brand awareness, there could be both push and pull, right? Where consumers are out seeking the brand and seeking those products and going to the professional channel, perhaps to even get them at the same point where they were kind of being pushed. And so that felt like they were operating with one hand behind their back and that we could help kind of unleash that. Now, how does Norwest help these companies once you make the investment In certain cases, there's a spectrum of how involved investors can be in a company. Can you tell us about Norwest's approach? So I would say we're very active board members, but we do not come with a playbook. And so that I think is differentiated. So we view ourselves as invited guests at the table that have to sort of earn the opportunity for participation in that board discussion and for the opportunity to be active. But I think our perspective is we try to be helpful to companies way before we invest in them. So we get to know CEOs and founders, and we try to be helpful in recruiting and business development and all sorts of areas well before sometimes we're actually an investor. And so the hope is, is we're sort of building that credibility so that by the time we are sitting on the board, we are really invited to sit there and be an active participant. But Our activities are really around strategy, business development, thinking about the organizational chart, thinking about the people and the town around the table, but not running the operating side of the business day to day. Our goal is to stay out of the way of founders and CEOs who will know the business and the intricacies better than we do being there day to day, but also to be able to provide a top-down view of what we see and in the context of the markets and in the context of the portfolio. And given that you try to establish relationships with certain entrepreneurs and executives earlier on, so you have some time to really get to know the company, get to know the management team, what are the areas or technologies that you're really interested in now that you think could become much bigger in the near future term? So I'd say on the tech side, I'd probably leave that to some of my venture tech investors. I will say that the merging of tech and healthcare and consumer is fascinating and happening before our eyes. I'm on the board of a company called Babylist, and we are really focused around the mom, the mom who's expecting, and how we can be helpful to her using technology and across all of her needs. And so the business started as just a registry for moms that really didn't know even what they needed, right? So We have the content to help them understand what they need. We've built sort of relationships with partners. So we've got a bit of a marketplace at this point where direct-to-consumer brands, as well as brands that might sell at Target, can all be brought into one registry. And we're helping the moms sort of through that process, but invite all of their friends and family to be gift givers, potentially. And so there's some virality on it. 
But we've also really been continuing to think about the continuum of how we can help that mother before she gets pregnant, sort of prepartum, and then how can we help her postpartum and thinking about the baby as well. We recently made a small acquisition of a durable manufacturing equipment company where they had insurance contracts in place that we could leverage. And today, now we've created Babyless Health, which is sort of a separate umbrella. And we're thinking through how can we be helpful to this mom in many, many different ways beyond just the gear and products she needs for her baby. But can we connect her with healthcare professionals? Can we connect her with online meditation? And what else can we do in, in thinking about feeding the baby, breast pumps, and another gear to get ready to go back to work? So there's a lot of opportunity. And so we're seeing this right before our eyes, I guess, at baby list of the conversion between healthcare technology and consumer purchasing habits. The interesting part there, it sounds like it started out as content and where an audience was engaged. And from there grew maybe an e-commerce business. Have you seen that before? Is that kind of a pattern that you look for? So we have definitely evolved our thinking around content as a really important piece of many of our investments, both from the actual education side that an engagement with a community, as well as now video and content sort of driving online advertising in many ways with TikTok and reels and things like that. So it's been an area where we have a lot of investment across our consumer facing companies in content and think that that will continue to be a super important piece. With the changes in iOS, you know, a lot of our companies saw increased customer acquisition costs and the unlock I do feel will be for many of them content that's engaging that brings consumers without having to spend the dollars. Got it. I'd like to switch gears a little bit before we head into the last segment of our conversation. And that is you've essentially built up a firm, Norwest. You're at the top of it. You're leading it. How have you approached it? Are there some kind of key tenets that you operate by as you're bringing people onto the team? as you're thinking about your systems, how you operate, what's kind of the guiding tenets or aspects to your business that you really focus on? We absolutely are focused on building our own community, really a team-oriented uh, workplace where you know there's collaboration across not only the growth equity team, but along with our venture team. So I mentioned our whole firm meets together on Mondays we do it over Zoom now because the numbers have gotten quite large, <laughs> but it, it's fantastic because everyone has sort of visibility. And so I think it starts there, right? First thing, Monday morning, 70 people on a Zoom together, hearing what the new opportunities are and what might be happening at current portfolio companies as far as exits and things. And so that's the beginning and, and we sort of do it all together. And from there, the culture has been to really help each other wherever we can. And that is, I think, the tenant that we want to continue as we expand the firm. Got it. Okay, last couple of questions. One is, could you tell us about a book that has had an impact on you? So it's a great question. And I'm going back way, way, way back. But I had a class in college called Money and Banking which before that class, I probably knew nothing about money and banking. <laughs> but the first book we read was A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And if you haven't read it, you should. It's 
very compelling just to understand these sort of cycles in the market, how bubbles sort of start and and then how they end (laughs) and that they've been happening forever, right? And I think it's really great perspective, especially for young people that haven't lived through a bubble busting and a recession before. It's just amazing that some of it is more human nature than anything else. And so that book I found fascinating. Last question. Can you tell us about a person that you admire or a leader that you highly respect? It could be across any domain or field of expertise. Interestingly, I tie it back to this professor, Mark Witte, who's now the head of the economics department at Northwestern University. I was a radio TV film major at Northwestern. And so the impact that taking his money in banking class, when I think at the time he he didn't quite have his PhD completed yet, (laughs) is really sort of shaped a lot of my thinking about investing, my thinking about the world and the career opportunity, because I did move from a radio TV film major into an investment banking role. And I'm still in touch with Professor Woody today. Excellent. Well, Sonia, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it.